Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, joined today by Simon Thompson. How are you, Simon? I'm great, John. Raring to go. Yeah, nice, nice of you uh, to to come to the office. <laughs> <laughs> uh, excellent. And we're going we're to be talking about some of your um, your ideas that you've uh, you've put forward this week, and some more some more general stuff, uh, particularly Bango and Boku, which has been an interesting story of the week. It has been. Boku's floated this week. They've got very, very similar business models, and uh, mm. you know, it's worth comparing the two. Absolutely. And uh, Jonas Costland, how are you, Jonas? Very well, thanks, John. Excellent. We're going to talk. Uh, we're going to talk a bit about the budget, in particular, mm. property Ugh. and the housing market. Yeah. Did you say Ugh? Well, it's a bit. It's a bit of a cloudy issue. You know? <laughs> a cloudy issue. It certainly is. It certainly is. Uh, anyway, yeah, it's uh, it's been a, a busy week at the magazine. Lots of results uh, this time of year. Lots and lots of news. Uh, but, but Tom, we might as well, since you're here, we might as well kick off with you because uh, you are the the bearer of the news about the small cap stories of the week. Where should we start? Well, I mean, the big one was this. Uh a tissue maker from Blackburn called Acrol, and mm. um, it floated um, middle of last year at pounds. This capital was a broker, and everything was going sweet, John. I put the readers in at a pounds. They had full year results, which actually beat expectations in July. Well, we, we've talked about it on this podcast before. It, sound, it did sound like a great story. Winning contracts from the discounters and, you know, decent profitability. And, and they, they work with some big names as well. Absolutely. So so you, you're talking all the major supermarkets, your discounters, Lidl, Aldi. Um, so they got some big contracts. And um, But anyway, covered the results in uh, over the summer. And, you know, the house broker tweaked its forecasts for the coming year a tad, but basically we're still saying that this company was going to do about £155 million worth of revenue and um, £14.5 million worth of pre-tax profits in the current financial year. And, um, and you know, it was trading on about 11 times earnings, dividend yield 4%. So I said, run profits. You're up 44%, run profits. And um, that was July. In September, they had a trading statement. They had an in-line trading statement, John, and nothing to be concerned about. But, but, but all has not been as it seemed. Four weeks later, bombshell hit, shares suspended, they've got a cash squeeze, and the news that came out this week was that their net debt, which was not an issue, £19 million net debt, creating to 1.2 times cash profits back in April, had ballooned, wait for it, from 19 to £42 million. How does that happen in such a short space of time? It's either incompetent working capital management, which that doesn't really explain everything, but the other thing is, John, um, the guidance, which was this business is going to do £17.5 million worth of cash profits, up from £16 million, that's no longer. Guidance is cash profit zero or a small loss. So in the space of four weeks, you've gone from a profitable business, dividend paying, apparently solid, to something that's a basket case. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I struggle to get my head around this. I struggle to get my head around how you can have such a, a substantial change in, in expectations in such a short space of time, given the restrictions we know companies have to, to abide by in terms of how they report to the market. Uh, something's not right here, John. Um, I, I've said the shares relisted, they tanked from 133 to 40-odd pence. I said, get out. I'm not happy. They're, they're having a placing, an emergency placing, 80 million pounds, 50 pence a share. The question so you're is... So you're suggesting people don't get involved in... Oh, no, 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 it's, no, not, no it's, it's not too, something it's, they can get involved in. It's Who's no, going to give them the money? Well, it's, it's, it's not a subscribed 
placing. So they're going to have to tap existing shareholders. Are the only ones I can see who'd actually, major, major institutional shareholders are the only ones that actually back this placing. I don't want to be part of this. There are so many red flags in the documents that, you know, the question you've got is, if you got fresh money, would you put it in? Would you rate these shares by a recovery buy? And for me, the answer is no. There's just too many re- red flags here. Yeah, what, one of one of them that you mentioned to me earlier was that that they failed to declare a uh, a fine that they were likely to receive from uh, health and safety in their admission document. Yeah, I, I read the the admission document it was a chunky document. I read it just like every floater look. At, so I, I read it completely. And there was no mention whatsoever of this HSE fine, which could be upwards of £3 million before a discount. So it could be a chunky sum of money. And the first we hear about it was was back in the autumn. And, you know, that's almost 18 months after it floated. Yeah, I mean, it, it does beg the question. The, the, aim, the aim as a market has been criticised for laxity in respect of some of its flotations and we've obviously had our fair share of exposure to that over the years but you know you would have it, it's just hard to comprehend how how these things can slip through is it is it something to do with the market or is it something to do with the uh, the nomad on this i mean you know how could this have happened well it's, it's something to do with the company the directors and the private equity owners that actually floated in the first place that thought it would not be prudent to actually disclose it in the document and actually make the corporate broker and nomad aware of the fact that there was this pending fine, which could be upwards between five hundred fifty thousand and uh, two point nine million pounds. Um, it's it's down to ultimately it's down to the company in the first place not to tell the corporate broker. And if they did tell the corporate broker, why did the corporate broker not make a point in the AIM admission documents to to raise this? I mean that that's just another issue. No, no. I mean, I guess my question is: Do you think this is a, a company specific issue or an issue with the, the, the way that AIM is regulated? I think in this case, it's a company-specific issue that someone's taken a view that the, the fine was going to be insignificant. They, they could actually absorb it and not disclose it at the time of the IPO because that would have um, dented the price they'd be able to float the company at. Um, that's the obvious um, conclusion to actually reach. And if, if that's the conclusion you're reaching, then, then you, know, you would expect higher powers to be looking at this. I, I, I certainly hope so. When something like this happens and a share price goes from one pound thirty three to forty pence, tanks almost seventy percent, and the news is so dire after an inline trading statement, a company cannot go from inline seventeen million pounds of cash profits predicted to actually put possibly a loss six months into a financial year. You can't do that. Mm. Let's let's move away from bad news uh, and and bashing the nomads because because actually I think you mentioned that Zeus is also the corporate broker to GYG which yeah. you do like I, I like GYG a lot I mean the, the, the business is simple they they spray paint super yachts and they refit them it's that that's it nothing well, we, else we have spoken about this before we, we spoke, it's a business model we can easily get heads around yeah you, even I can get my head around this one John <laughs> and um, the, the problem they had was the hurricane season on the east coast um Although it didn't really affect the yards that they um, fit and spray these boats in, it's impacted the owners who had their boats over super yachts in the Mediterranean who thought, hey, we'll actually keep them here for a, a bit longer, just wait and see until things settle with the hurricane season. And it's delayed the start date of a few contracts, which were high margin. So we're looking at about 5 million euros worth of revenue, 1 million euros of cash profit, has actually been kicked into 2018. All these contracts have started. They haven't been postponed. They've actually, or, you know, delayed item, item, but they, they've actually 
they've, they've started already. People got worried because it, this happened the same week as Acrol, which was another Swiss company, had this terrible news, and GYG shares got marked down. And I, I told our readers to buy at the float price a pound, although realistically, pound fifteen was the starting price they could have actually traded at uh, when it floated in the summer. And when they got marked down this week, I said, no, no, it's a repeat buying opportunity. This is not actually bad, bad news. Revenues and profits have just been delayed, pushed into 2018. And the most important thing with GYG is that the latest order book is at a record level. That, does it impinge upon their ability to deliver that you know, in, in the time frame that's required to support the, the, the price, the valuation that, that, uh, that, that the shares are at right now? They can deliver on those revenues, Absolutely. I, I I can't see a problem with that. And I, I interviewed the directors for about an hour and a half before it floated. I interviewed the directors for the best part of an hour at the time of the interim results. I, I know this company, and I'm pretty confident it's a repeat buying opportunity, which is why that's the advice this week. And the shares have bounced back, and they're back to where they were before. So I think other people are taking a very sensible approach to this. And on roughly 11 times forward earnings, dividend yield of 5%, I think it's cracking value. Excellent. I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued. To, I would love to have heard that conversation. I'd love to hear how you can uh, you can draw such a simple business model <laughs> to an hour and a half's conversation. But uh... No, the reason for that, John, is that I went through the AIM admission document, which is about 130, 150 pages in fine detail, uh, forensic counting, in effect. Ooh. And um, I, I, I raised points that other journalists possibly wouldn't have raised, but I had to be comfortable with the business model before I put readers in. But you can only go on what they tell you. Uh, and obviously, you need to get comfortable with that. In the case of Acrol, it's not been as easy to do that. It should have been disclosed with Acrol at the time of the IPO that there was an HSE fine. There was something not right in September when the clearly the finance director and the chief executive who who left in September guided the market to expect inline profit expectations when clearly the trading performance was to the contrary. I, I do wonder if those management changes have had something to do with the, the, the change to, to what they're guiding the market at. Too, but that, you know, there you go. Let's uh, let's move on. Let's talk uh, Bango Boku. This is an interesting story which Harriet Klarfeld has covered in the news section. But it's, I know Bango is a company you've followed. I, I I really like Bango. I put the readers in around about ninety odd pence back in September. They were trading roughly around that at the start of the year. And um, the key thing about this is that Bango provides um, a mobile payment platform that enables smart phone users to charge purchases made in app stores straight to the mobile phone account. It's been winning a host of contracts. Big in Japan. Huge in Japan. Japanese um, Amazon website has annual revenues of 1 trillion yen, that's 6.7 billion sterling. And they've got the account there, um, an arrangement that enables customers of the two largest mobile phone companies to pay for the goods from the Amazon Japan website by charging the cost to the mobile phone account. Mm. And this, well, in the last few weeks, that's actually been extended, that arrangement to Amazon Prime and Amazon Student Membership Programs. So, so the point Harriet makes in her, her news piece is that Bango shares fell on, on the announcement or on the arrival of Boku to the market. But this market, the carri- direct carrier billing market, is big enough to support more than one player. Oh, without a shadow of a doubt. I mean, there's 7.2 billion mobile accounts worldwide. Roughly half of transactions are not done um, with credit cards and debit cards. You've got masses of territories across the world that that would welcome the ability to use 
DCP direct carrier billing um, arrangements. And this is because many, in many territories people have mobile phones, but they don't necessarily have bank accounts. And a, a great example of that is in Nigeria. Is there's 150 million mobile subscribers, and it's got more mobile internet users than any other African country. And Android smartphones account for 6% of the mobile market share. And Bango has just signed a contract with Nine Mobile, one of the biggest operators in, in Nigeria, in the last few weeks. Um, it, I mean, Boku, Boku looks interesting too. I mean, you, obviously you've looked in detail at Bango. Boku looks interesting too. We, we've uh, initiated our coverage with a speculative buy because it's in the right market. It seems to have a, a, a viable established business. You're looking at this in some, some more detail now as well. Absolutely. I mean, Boku's a lot bigger than Bango. Both companies have basically turned cash profitable in the last few weeks. The revenue or transactions that Boku, um, Boku carries out are a lot higher than Bango. Um, both have hit the inflection points. Both have made the investment in their platforms. The market 2020, according to analysts, could be worth $20 billion um, in transaction value and based on a margin of one and a half to two percent, which is basically what these these companies charge. There's a heck of a lot of revenue out there to actually capture, and revenue becomes gross profit, becomes net profit. So, so you're looking at this in more detail, aren't you, for your column next week? Absolutely. So, so next week I'll be going into this and actually um, explaining why I, I think that there's room in the market for both players. I, I await it with bated breath, Simon. Thank you very much. As we move on to the budget. Let's talk budget, Jonas. And the, obviously the big news, in the, I mean, there was, it was quite an interesting budget, I thought. Hmm. Yeah, it was interesting. Some it, good jokes. It, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't expect that. But obviously the big news in the budget is the, uh, the, the attention that's being paid to the housing crisis. Uh, Sajid Javid, the community secretary, had presented some numbers to, to government the week before. Uh, and it seemed like he was, he was pretty much sort of told to, uh, to get back in his box. But Hammond has delivered something... Yeah, he's delivered something. That $44 billion, um, it's not entirely clear how much of that is new money. Um, it never is, Jonas. It, it never, never is. is. There, there's a, a fairly high level of cynicism because the government promised to build 200,000 startup homes three years ago, that was, and so far they haven't built any. So nobody's holding their breath. And that $44 billion is also over the next five years. So it, there's there's no silver bullet as Mr. Hammond suggested. But, but, but I mean, it's an interesting demonstration that they are looking at housing. It, it, it's clearly a national problem. We, we have a shortage. House prices are, are booming. Housing affordability, whether you're renting or buying, is it? it's probably lowest ebb for, for many, many years. It's a good start. Yeah, it's a good start. I mean, getting rid of the stamp duty on houses up to 300,000. For first-time buyers. Yeah, for first-time buyers. is basically subsidising demand and not addressing the supply issues. So arguably, it'll make it easier for more people to buy houses, which will underpin house prices. Yes, that's true. So, that, so affordability might even get worse. Yes, and I, I think the OBR put some numbers together, which suggested that would indeed be the uh, the, the effects of this this measure. That said, house builder shares fell, and I suspect the reason is that essentially they were threatened by the chancellor that they will be investigating how they approach land banking. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a very emotive issue because a lot of house builders have land banks e- equivalent to three, four, five, six years of output. And they always claim that they need that because it takes two or three years to get stuff through the planning procedures. And local authorities' planning uh, offices are, are stripped bare. 
they're under-resourced, and each local authority has its own planning ideas. There is no formal nationwide procedure. And I, I think you mentioned as well that, I mean, what essentially the threat was, if, you, if you're sitting on land and not using it, we will intervene, the government will intervene, and potentially even comp- compulsory purchase this, this land. But as you pointed out yesterday, councils have a, a route to do that already to a certain extent. Yes, they can. It's, it's odd because, uh, especially in London, I mean, it, it, it doesn't stack up if, if house prices are falling in London and you're sitting on land. Um, it, it doesn't make sense because the land is falling in value. Well, the developed value of that land is falling. So I, I, I don't think there's going to be much coming out of this, to be quite honest. OK, so the House... I'd, I'd agree with Jonas. I can't, I can't remember a single report by the government into housing in terms of land banking by the house builders that's actually come out and actually been negative on the house builders. I remember covering the Barker report years ago and the same issue was raised then. Admittedly, the housing shortage today is far greater than it was back then, but the the house builders were cleared of hoarding lands then and the the same issue is today. Mm. Um, Actually, from my perspective, the, the winners from this are not the house builders. It's going to be companies that actually develop lands of which the two that spring to mind that I know Jonas is keen on as well are Henry Boot and Inland who've got massive land banks so if the local authorities do actually accelerate planning permission that's going to be rather good news for them yeah yeah, I mean, where I live, they, um, there has been a, a local plan that's been in place for a long, long time. Part of that local plan was developed, I think they talked about it yesterday, green, uh, what do they call them? Like green green towns? or No, what do they call them? Garden towns. Garden towns. Garden towns. So we, we were due to have a big development at the north of the town, a big development of, uh, at the south. But the planning process has been torturous. Torturous. And it's only now that, that it's, it's recently got through. And actually, it was because the, the, cent- the central government did intervene. But, but it's taken a long time. The planning process does need fixing. Yeah, there's 15 local authorities under scrutiny at the moment by the government because they've failed to put in a, a local plan and they're obliged to put their requirements, well, to publish their requirements and say we need 2,000 houses this year or whatever, and they haven't even done that. So house builders can't be expected to build houses when the local authority doesn't even know what they want. Indeed, lots of houses going up near me. Uh, I mean, it's extraordinary, actually, the amount of building near me, but uh, but I live on a commuter belt, so... Yeah. You would expect it, and it's, it, it must be profitable business for the house builders. I mean, uh, there was another measure that I thought was interesting, was, which was support for smaller house builders. So the big builders that we cover deliver a certain number of houses, but the difficulties in, in sort of flexing that upwards have been that it's much more difficult for a, a smaller house builder to get the, the, the credit it needs to develop. And uh, do, you th- do you think that's going to have an impact on the market? Most certainly, because the, the, the quoted house builders produce forty, fifty thousand 50,000 houses a year. And the last year to date, there are about 220 completions. So the balance of those are by housing associations and unquoted building companies. Um, and, and they've had it pretty tough because after the crash, obviously, speculative building, the banks just turn, their, turn themselves away. They, they won't lend money to builders who say, I've, I've bought some land, I want to buy some, build some houses, can you lend me some money? And they just say no. So, so in that respect, this is a good step by the government to, to make it easier for those guys to, to build. 
Yes, it, it certainly is. Arguably, you could say that the banks ought to have a more positive view of things now because if, if they want to lend money to builders to build houses, unlike in the crash, it's not going to all end in tears because there is a housing shortage. Mm, that's the, the uh, economic forecasts, which were downgraded quite substantially in the budget, are not, not looking that great, but, uh, but there you go. But, um, but isn't that just a case of Hammond's... Under promising, so you can over deliver. The the, uh, the OBR is independent, Simon. It may be independent. <laughs> it, it, call, call me sceptical, but from my lens at least, that looks as if it's happened. Mm. I call you sceptical. <laughs> <laughs> I call you cynical, in fact. Um, I mean, Jonas, you mentioned something at the beginning of this interview about starter homes. And, and you know, that's where the real problem lies. A, a small handout to in the form of you know, the abolished stamp duty on, on first-time buyers, is it's not really going to move the dial there. We, we talked yesterday about modular house building. Mm. And, and, and actually, there, there is a company in the UK on the market that's, that, that is involved in this. Yeah, Mar- it, This is where we need to go, surely. It, certainly, Mars City, they're, uh, I, I could say they, they didn't do quite as well as everyone expected, but I don't think that's anything to do with the product. And I've seen their their houses or their flats and they can they can knock them up in in a week what what, what are they what i mean well so we've all watched grand designs we watched the old hoof house being built over on a lorry but yeah. not quite not quite that high end but but not not the prefabs of old that people are, are worried about no no they, they they just bring in um on a lorry and use cranes to deliver walls and they're triple insulated structural insulated panels yes yes right. i like these things and they just bolt them all together put glass in and uh, all the all the the sort of fittings and fixtures are already there and it's done i, I wanted to i did a, an extension on my, my last house and i wanted to use sip structure structural insulated panels to do it and, and i couldn't find a builder that would do it no i think this this is this is part of the problem and, and actually something else you mentioned yesterday jonas is that, that one of the big problems for the house builders is is um is the is the labor force yeah with modular housing i mean you basically need a fitter rather than a craftsman who, or a bricky or a, uh, which are in short supply yeah exactly yeah and the, that shortage of labor is considerable because well everyone's worried about you know the polish plumbers being not allowed into the country and the builders have all done apprenticeship schemes but um, it's just a drop in the ocean mm, absolutely simon house building it must be getting to that time of year again um it is i'm going to have a very close look at the um the state of the house builders' share prices and valuations, the market backdrop at the end of um, end of December, and come to decision whether or not I think the rally is going to happen yet again in the first quarter. It's a standing dish of the stock market. How, how has it been doing over the past few years? Amazingly well. <laughs> I mean, amazing. <laughs> but, but basically, you, you could put the house builders start of January, sort out the end of March, phoned up your stockbroker and just said, "Send me the check, please." You know, your profits were so big, and we're talking 20, 25, 30% some years. It's just been incredible. Uh, but our house builders not at now at that point where the, 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 the kind of tide is moving against them, certainly in terms of sentiment. Uh, it's not been great for the house builders since Brexit. I mean, it's been up and down. Bit of a bit more of a hit yesterday. I mean, are we still, what do we think about the house builders generally as, um, as investments? Well, I mean, in the good old days, it, the House builders are always regarded as very cyclical, so you buy when the uh, market's depressed and then you sell on the the very slightest hint of anything that turns the cycle. But house builders this time round aren't over-geared, interest rates are low, demand is intense, 
there's help to buy, there's a number of incentives for, for first-time buyers. It's hard to see the house builders sort of tanking or, or collapsing simply because it's an easy model. Big, big cash returns still coming? Yep. Oh, yes. I mean, Persimmon and Barclay are, are promising huge returns out to 2021. Um, and they're, they're, they're making a lot of money. The other thing, of course, is that if the house builders start to struggle a little bit, people like Taylor Wimpy spend more on land than their pre-tax profits. So if they just stop buying land, uh, they could they'd, they'd have a huge margin of, of, of comfort there. So nice, nice safety valve. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah. so not, not a bad budget for the house builders then, despite the, uh, the share price falls yesterday. Well, they, they went down yesterday on the, uh, on the, you know, the land bank thing, but they're up today because people have suddenly realised that there's going to be more people wanting or able to buy houses. Yeah, so no, no end in sight to that cycle. Then um, let's, uh, let's talk quickly. I mean, the budget, the budget overall was, I, I think, fairly interesting. We had, we had some more news there about EIS, which uh, the personal finance team will know, EIS, Enterprise Investment Schemes for, uh, for smaller businesses. A lot of support for things like green energy and electric cars and, and, and R&D, you know, helping get, getting Britain in shape for, for the post-Brexit world, which we've covered. Lots, of, lots of specifically around tech that, that Megan has covered in the piece as well. And we've spoken ad nauseum about electric cars in recent weeks, so uh, months even. So let's, uh, let's, uh, let's move on. Let's quickly turn to the results section because it has been a busy week for results. Obviously, Simon, you, uh, you no longer have much to do with the results section. I was also coming back from holiday, John. Um, yeah, nice, where'd you go? I, I went to Malta, which I've never been to before, and I was pleasantly surprised. Pleasantly surprised? What did you expect? I, I was blown away by the architecture. Absolutely beautiful in the old town. You're also blown away by the Burger King. I love the story. Oh, you're not going to believe this. So, so ha- having eaten out with, with Mrs. T on fish, um, and quality of fish was fantastic, um, every single day, all I wanted was a burger one night. So anyway, we, we pop along to a Burger King along the, the, ma- the major market. It's a Malta for a Burger King. <laughs> no, just, 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 just one evening. And um, anyway, we were queuing up, not that it was that busy, and on the wall in the old town of this, this Burger King was, was a, a frame certificate from the EU stating that Burger King, and I presume it's a franchise, had been granted EU funding to upgrade their kitchen and invest in the EPOS system for, uh, for their tills. I just found that absolutely remarkable. I think we'd need to dig into the story to get to the to the truth there, but it does seem odd. Oh, there's, Burg- def- there's, Burg- def- there's definitely meat on the bone there, John. Oh, God. Mm. As it happens, Burger King is uh, is mentioned in the magazine this week in the results section. Uh, SSP, which is the station grub company, uh, runs their franchises, and it's been a great. I mean, that look at that share price; it's amazing, up, up, and up. Well, so, it just all those late night burritos <laughs> just shows the appetite of the UK consumer for um, junk food. Yes, indeed, it does, especially late night junk food at stations. Jonas on the same page, New River Retail. Mm. Not not New River Retail anymore. No, New 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 River REIT. Why have they changed their name? Because they've become a REIT. Yes. Yes. These, this is an interesting company. I've always been very sceptical of what they do. In fact, I think I had a bet with uh, with Stephen Wilmot, who was your property predecessor, that, that I could not get my head around this model because I knew what, what they owned out near me. Horrible things. But this is a this has been a great investment. You've still got them on a buy. Yeah, well, they've they've just picked the sort of bits of the retail side which everyone's running away from that that makes well is growth, uh, convenience shopping. People are shunning the hypermarkets and they're sort of popping around the corner and coming back with their brown 
paper bags as they did in you know in in, in all the US uh, films, um, and it's it's a fast growing side, and they also identify investment opportunities. I mean, I think recently they built they they bought uh, Bexley Shopping Centre, and I kind of or Bexley Heath Shopping Centre. Sorry, you know it. Yeah, I used to live close by and I sort of groaned, you know, why why would you buy a shopping centre which is five miles from Blue Water and six miles from Lakeside? And I bet, I bet it's not the prettiest of shopping centres either. No, but they've refurbed it and also there's there's a lot of space over the top which can be used for residential. It's funny, funny you say that, the one they bought near me, which is in a town called Whittam. Mm. It's, I mean, it's a, it's a very old, you know, sort of 60s concrete, uh, very old-fashioned retail scheme. But above it, they have offices, which they've turned into gyms. People, they've let it out to gym owners, operators. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's done really well. Yeah, the management team there is very experienced. Um, I mean, they, the one I like about them is uh, they, they bought a pub chain or a, a load of pubs from Marlston's. And they use the car parks because nobody drives to the pub anymore. And they use the car parks and, and built convenience stores. And they've got a tie up with the co-op. And that's doing really well. Indeed, no, it's an interesting company. Um, mm. Thank you. Uh, plenty more results in the magazine this week. I mean, absolutely loads, absolutely loads. It's uh, it's a busy, busy enough time of year as it is, mm-hmm. and uh, then we get a results rush on top of that, and, and a and a budget. We've had two budgets this year now. Budget day is horrible mm. from a production perspective. <laughs> you, you'll be better off in two thousand and eighteen, though, John. Yes, so I hear. So I hear. Anyway, I think uh, I think uh, as I say, loads more in the magazine, but uh, we we don't have the time or, or the personnel in this room to uh, to go through it all. So thank you, Simon, uh, and thank you, Jonas, uh, for your uh, valuable contributions today. As I say, fifteen or sixteen pages of results, all the usual tips and uh, and tip updates. Plenty in the personal finance and fun section, including some budget coverage, which uh, they'll be talking about on their podcast tomorrow. The cover feature is interesting this week, uh, written by Daniel Liberto, formerly of this parish, who now, now lives out in Italy, Sicily, in fact. Lucky, lucky Daniel. Um, but he's written a piece on us about director dealings, which is much looked at, poorly understood. Did you look at director dealings, Simon, when you were... Uh... I, I, I looked at them in my last book, and so I'm going to be looking at them in my new book as well, John. You might want to read this feature. I certainly will. If you want to borrow any of it, give us a shout and sell you the copyright. (laughs) (laughs) As generous as ever, John. (laughs) In fact, you you mentioned a a case study you'd you'd be looking at for for the development of a new product we're working on at the moment for uh, for the new year. But uh, you're borrowing that case study for your book as well. I am. It's, it's incredibly interesting and it's incredibly informative as well. So um... I'll send you the bill. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, no, it's a great feature. Looking at the essentially what what you should be looking at when you're trying to get to the bottom of director dealings. Uh, Dan's a great writer, and yes, of course, rounding off the feature section. Philip Ryland has finally finished his 50 objects that define investing with, a, with a, a really interesting feature about some objects that really define growth, income and recovery, which I guess are some of the, the, the key things uh, that, that we look for, uh, for in investing. So uh, it's a great read. We're going to be rounding them all up on the website and, uh, so you can, you can go back to the beginning and, uh, and read them all. They're, they are fantastic, fantastically written and, uh, and very, very informative. Anyway, thank you for listening. Thank you, Jonas. Thank you, Simon. Uh, we will be back again again uh next week getting close to christmas getting busy lots to write about speak soon